The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll share the latest updates from the Battle for Donbass as fierce fighting continues across the region, and we discuss the role and relevance of the UN in the conflict. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's the 29th of April, day 65. And today I'm joined by Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Foreign Editor Katie O'Neill and Mutaz Ahmed from our comment team. Just a quick note from me, Monday is a public holiday in the United Kingdom, so instead of our daily show, we have an interview with Campbell McDermott, a Telegraph journalist who's been reporting from the ground in Ukraine. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the front lines. Hi David, hi everybody. It's been quite a quite a busy time in the last 24 hours, mainly indirect fire, artillery and missiles. Russia has put a lot of fire across most of the country, to be honest. Um, strikes in Kyiv, which we will talk about a little bit later, coinciding possibly even because of the visit of UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, um, killed at least one person, a journalist for Radio Free Europe, and uh, injured many more. Other than that, in the Donbass, there have been small tactical gains by Russia. It's quite interesting what's happening there. Uh, we, we could dig into this a little bit a little bit more, but um, Russia, as we've mentioned before, just hasn't really been able to get the combined arms manoeuvre together. So all the different parts of the military working in, in concert. It was all a bit piecemeal. They're not there yet, but they're, they're doing better. And what, what that's enabling is small incremental gains um, Ukraine has been ceding ground for time and then choosing to counterattack at a place and a time and place of their own choosing. But there, so there have been some uh, some sort of shifts to the to the uh, villages in the uh, in the sort of central Donbass region. Ukraine has, has made some advances in the north, to the north and to the northeast of uh, Kharkiv. There have been some uh, Ukrainians pushed back there, and in the south around Kazan, um, sort of up towards Zaporizhia. Uh, Russia has has tried to to push there, al- although not they've not been very successful. And the South, you'll remember, has been um, in the first few weeks of the war anyway. That's where they had the most operational success. So if any if any um, any of the uh, um, military districts seemed to know what they were doing, it was the South. So it's assessed that in the South they are they are needling the Ukrainian forces in order to to fix them down there, so they can't then go and. Ukraine can't go and reinforce their their uh, positions in the Donbass. So it sounds like this, the South might be a sort of um, fix and demonstration, if you like, with still the main effort in the Donbass. I'll pause there. Just very quickly, Don, before we bring in Katie, um, can I just ask, when you say they're fixing them there, how exactly do you are they doing that? What what, what yeah what are they doing exactly there? Well, it's a bit like if you remember. Uh, I mean, there still is a threat from the Black Sea Fleet, what's left of the Black Sea Fleet after the Mosfar has been sunk. But the thing about um, an amphibious force, and this isn't a complete tangent, so when I say amphibious force, think big manoeuvre elements of Russian forces in uh, in South Ukraine. 
thing about amphibious force is you, you don't know where it's where it's going to be you don't know what it's going to do can you ever afford to take your eye off the ball and it's a bit like that around Kherson and, and in that the, the sort of southwest the southwest extent of the Russian uh, Russian gains so far I mean they've got a huge number of forces there they're very well supplied from Crimea um, they've been obviously in Crimea since 2014 when they illegally annexed it so they've got a big big um, rear base there so they're very well supported and um, it's a, it's a sizable force that's demonstrated uh, operational and tactical success so far in the war so even though the, the front line hasn't moved a huge amount there and these these threats to uh, and and attempts to go uh, round um, Mikhailov and to Odessa and we've heard in the last few days you know talk of Transnistria as well um uh, you, you can't totally discount that. So Ukraine would, would, well, has not been able to take forces out of there to go and reinforce where the main fighting seems to be in the Donbass because, um, as the old military saying, that the... Um, uh, the, 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 the <laughs> so old, I can't remember it. No, the, the, yeah, the, the, en- the, enemy's, um, the enemy's feint is the, is the attack that you've always, you take your eye off. I'll completely mangle that. I'll have a think about it and, and come back. But, you know, Ukraine can't take their eye off those forces in the south because... Um, they, they, they are still a very potent force. Thanks, Dom. Uh, Katie, do you want to add to any of that? Hi, David. Yeah, there was an interesting report overnight, uh, an intelligence briefing from the Pentagon, where they were discussing the conditions in the Donbass. Obviously, that's the area that, the, as we all know, that the Russians are focusing in on now. And uh, the Pentagon was saying that the muddy conditions there are really hampering the advance of Russian troops. They're calling their advance slow and uneven. And the reason for that is, obviously, the, the tanks are getting bogged down there and it drives tanks onto more main established roads where they're more vulnerable to confrontation and attacks and being targeted by Ukrainian guerrilla forces. So interesting that as the weather's getting better, um, spring conditions, the, the, the soil is softening and it's also been raining quite a bit in that region uh, in the east during the past week. So that is having an effect on Russians as they're trying to, uh, to advance. The Pentagon briefing also said that uh, Russians' losses are much bigger than Ukraine's uh, so far as that battle continues to rage in the east just as they wanted to have this lightning capture of Kiev in the beginning of the invasion. It was also hoped um, by the Russians that they would, uh, at a very fast pace, uh, conquer Donbass, and we're seeing that that hasn't uh, come to pass. Thanks, Katie. Uh, Mutas, do you have anything to add to that, or shall we talk about the UN Secretary-General's visit to Kiev yesterday? I, I think they covered that pretty well. Um, you know, the key point is that the Russians aren't advancing anywhere near as, as quickly as they, they expected, even in this second round. This second stage, they're, they're failing uh, quite badly. Um, so that's interesting. Thank you very much. Um, well, let's do it. Let's. Antonio Guterres was in Kiev yesterday and uh, the Russian forces uh, fired on the city. What happened? So this came after Antonio Guterres, um, UN Secretary General, visited Moscow earlier in the week and, uh, and went, to, went to Ukraine yesterday. Uh, he, so he, was, uh, he visited Bucha, the area to the northwest of the capital where the, uh, the, the atrocities that, that have been uncovered so far um, have been reported, and uh, and yeah, so he met met President Zelensky. A, no, a number of quotes. I mean, he said uh, he said he was shocked. Which, you know, fair, which is fair enough. Um, and he says that the UN is is and this is a quote not part of present political negotiations, but we are following them with a lot of interest and hoping they will solve the problem and that peace will come back. I mean, it, you know, I I have been beating this drum 
many years now, really, and I, I don't mean to sound like a like a stuck record, but you know, I just expect better from the UN Secretary General. I mean, everything he says is correct. He said Mariupol is an apocalypse. He says we're at ground zero for the world we need to build. Uh, Mariupol is a crisis within a crisis. The, the civilians need an escape route out of the apocalypse. I mean, this is all. It's it's correct. He's not wrong. To be fair to him, he did say that the um, the war is a failure of the of the Security Council. Um, but he was interviewed on Al Jazeera, and he said that uh, it was up President Zelensky had put it to him that yeah, what what is Russia doing as a permanent member of the UN Security Council? And uh, Mr. Guterres said, well, it's up for the uh, t- that's because of the UN charter and to change the charter the general assembly of the un as in the 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 wider body with every where every country is uh, represented has to be a two-thirds majority to change the charter and two-thirds majority and all five of the uh, of the p5 nations so you know a very long way to go before we can change change the rules and have some uh, effect on potentially you know removing russia from the p5 but i i just expect better from from mr G- mr Guterres and and from and from the un so he was he's in Kiev at least he's there you know I'm trying to trying to look for the positives here he's there he's saying a lot of the right things he's just not saying enough not saying enough of them um and whilst he was there Kiev for the first time in weeks came under renewed shelling um this was described by by the Ukrainian authorities as a, a postcard from Moscow uh I mean if ever there was a, a demonstration that that Russia holds I mean, if it holds UN in contempt, then at least at least Russia's thinking about the UN. I'm not even sure they they care that much. They just they just do not care. Putin does not care. Just writes they write their own rules. We're all expected to adhere to it. Shelling Kiev whilst the UN Secretary General is there is 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 just such an egregious act in terms of um, what it says about how how little the UN is viewed. Um, it, it's just staggering. Uh, and as I said earlier, there, there were casualties. And we've yet to hear, um, yet hear any more from, um, from Mr Guterres. Mutaz and Katie, I'm sure you both have some thoughts on this. I agree with Tom. It's, it, it, it's a humiliation for Guterres and, and the United Nations. You know, they, they basically wiped the floor with him. Um, I, was, I was speaking to someone, a reporter this morning, who's in Moscow, actually. Um, uh, so I'm not going to name them. Um, but but what they noticed was that there was hardly any coverage of the UN visit. You'd expect the opposite, um, but it was almost as if, it, uh, uh, you know, the Kremlin intentionally set out to make um, Guterres look irrelevant. Um, but, but the facts are the facts, and, you know, there is only so much he can do. For as long as Russia is a member of the Security Council, he has to represent Russia too. You know that's just that's just a fact. And we can like we can talk about kicking Russia out of of the uh, UN Security Council, but you know um, the people who advocate that have to answer you know uh, the question of, of if we kick Russia out, how do we get the world's big nuclear powers round the table? You you eventually end up producing the same sort of institution, um, and and underlying the problem. Um, is the fact that a, a fair chunk of the world doesn't see this the way we in the West do. You know, Russia has some powerful backers. Uh, countries such as India and China do not agree with the UK-US-EU perspective. Um, and that's at least one other UN Security Council nation. Um, so there, there's no e- easy answer to this. Effectively, 
the UN is a reflection of the world order. And when the world order breaks down, the UN breaks down. And so there's a more fundamental point, which is one of the one of the countries that are expected to police that, that is expected to police world affairs has become violent and has become an agitator and has started wars of conquest in Europe. Um, and, you know, that leaves a sort of massive gap where, you know, fill it with what you want. But, you know, there, there are no easy answers, basically. And so you, it's, it's probably a good thing that the UN uh, Secretary General is trying to speak to both sides. Um, but essentially that trip reflected the, the hole that we're in, the, this massive muddle we're in, which is there isn't much anyone can do um, at the moment. If I could just come back, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with, with Mutaz, and maybe I've come out of the blocks a bit quickly, but uh, I mean, in terms of well, those that advocate that the UN needs reform, of which I'm one, what, what would you put in its place? Well, I mean, we can have the conversation. The, the two-thirds rule seems to work for the General Assembly, so why don't we have that in the, sec- in the Security Council? Why don't we have two-thirds rule in the P5? So three, three of the five have to agree to, to get it through. I mean, you know, of course, it's, all a bit, it's, it's easy to say those things. There'll be bits and bobs that fall out of all of that. But I think we, we could at least have the conversation now. And I don't think it's good enough for Ms. Guterres to, to stand in Kiev and say, and this is a quote, I think it's very important to spare this wonderful city. Kiev is a city with an enormous historical value. It represents everything for both Ukrainians and Russians, and I hope that Kiev will be spared. I mean, it's just it's just word salad. It's just, it doesn't do anything. I mean, yes, it's a wonderful city. I've been there. It is a wonderful city. But, I mean, just talking in those terms, talking using the word spare, he hopes it's spared. He hopes it will be spared. I mean, from whom? I mean, who's doing this? Who is attacking Kiev such that it needs to be spared? There's almost we seem to be leaving a very large sort of Russian-shaped elephant out of the room here. So I just I accept that it's difficult, and and he's right to go. And what he's saying is correct. But I think he he should say more. He should point the finger at, at Russia. Um, and I I think there are mechanisms where we could reform the UN. Um, or at least, at least have the conversation. End of rant. Yes, but but if you begin to remove major non-Western nuclear powers from UN institutions, you will not have a UN at the end of it. You will have a body representing Western interests alone. And we have those bodies. You know, we have the EU, we have NATO. And the point of the UN is it's, it's supposed to bring all the world's major powers together. If you begin to turn on, not turn on, we can turn on Russia, of course we can. But when you remove Russia from decision-making bodies, the, the, you know, the, the Chinese, it, it, the UN become discredited in China and in, in uh, uh, some Eastern countries and in, in many of the African countries that, that actually don't take our position on this. And, and we saw this happen with the um, um, International Criminal Court, for instance, which is, is not considered a cre- credible court in much of Africa is not considered a credible court in much of South America because it took this sort of stance where it was very proactive in going after um, non-Western um, uh, criminals while countries such as America aren't even signatories, right? It, the, the UN is a reflection of the, this. It's frustrating because, yes, 
it's frustrating to see Russia in these positions these uh, with this veto in the Security Council, but that is only a reflection of the mess we're in. And if you don't deal with the fact that, you know, we're faced with a nuclear power that is incredibly aggressive, you can't fix it. I guess my, my point is that that, 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 that isn't, that the solution is much more, you know, it will take much more than just removing it's too easy, basically, um, uh, and this will probably end militarily with Russia either getting bogged down or Russia winning, um, and uh, and that renders because Russia is a major nuclear power, it renders the UN and it renders much of diplomacy really um, uh, irrelevant for now. I hate uh, those that spout easy. Sorry, hate. That's a very strong word. I, I hate the suggestion that there are easy answers to complex problems. I mean. Uh, there, there are not. I'm not suggesting there are. I'm not suggesting that we kick Russia off the uh, off the UN or the Security Council or anything. But I'm just saying we need to have a conversation. And it basically boils down to: Is the UN a mirror or a life belt? So is it a mirror just showing the world where we are at the moment in in 21st century or however you want to you know, take the date from? You know, is it just a mirror of of humanity? Or is it a life belt sort of pu- pulling humanity forwards and trying to overcome some of the, the worst aspects of what it is to be human and, and show us a brighter future and, and lead us to a better place? So, yeah, mirror or life belt, you know, a, de- a debate that will rumble on and has rumbled on forever. But, uh, uh, yes, I'm just a bit, bit frustrated with the UN right now. Thanks, Dom and Mutas. I think that that discussion actually just shows the nuances and the complications um, to, do, to do with this question. Um, let's get back to Ukraine. Casey O'Neill, is there, is there anything else we need to comment on that's happening in the country before we talk about President Biden's request to Congress? No, I think uh, as we've discussed, the Donbass and, and the Kyiv situation are the, the the most recent actions in terms of things happening on the ground in Ukraine. That strike that uh, occurred in Kyiv, uh, one of the targets was a 25-storey building, a residential building. Um, as Dom has said, there was a casualty. It's also been reported that someone lost their uh, leg in that attack. That was the the postcard from Putin. So those, have, along with the Donbass, that's uh, where we've seen the most military reaction in the past uh, couple of hours and days. Thank you very much. Can we talk then about uh, President Biden's request to Congress? What's happening there, Casey O'Neill? Yeah, so uh, Biden has asked for a further $33 billion to uh, be approved in, in funding from the US to the Ukraine. Uh, last month or, or to date, I think their funding is, is somewhere at 13 billion or thereabouts, so uh, so double what they have already pledged. I think what this is indicative of is the fact that the US and the West don't see this conflict as something that is going to be resolved anytime soon. Uh, the fact that the, the funding that the US is uh, and, and Joe Biden is seeking is so large, it speaks to the need to reinforce the uh, kit that the Ukrainians have and also a a belief that the war isn't going to end anytime soon. Interestingly, uh, Biden said yesterday that for uh, every uh, Russian tank that there is, the West and the US has has given 10 anti-tank weapons for each of those one tanks that the Russian Russian army has. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the support they've given is is no small thing thus far, but uh, a further hope for Biden that he can secure those funds from uh, Congress to uh, deliver more military aid to Ukraine. Mutaz and Dom, anything to come in on that? 
I just say we we shouldn't underestimate what a what a number that is. Not only is it thirty three billion, it, it's colossal. But in order that, uh, and it's not gone through yet. We should we should admit, but, but um, the bipartisan support it would take that's been pretty solid so far. I mean that that does speak of very strong U.S. resolve here. Um, it, it's, it's it's notable. They're in for the long haul. Yeah, I'd agree. It's a, it's a massive number, and it's a reflection of sort of journey we've been on. Right. There was a time when the West was very reluctant to provide armory uh, and and now we're talking about heavy weapons and plane parts and $33 billion worth of um, support. And, and it's a signal, most importantly, to the Kremlin that, that the West will, will, will continue to supply Ukraine, even if this becomes a long war as, as, as the likes of Listrus uh, fear. Thank you very much, Mutaz. Um, Dom Nichols, I know you had some thoughts earlier about uh, the Russian generalship in, in Ukraine. Um, do you want to talk us through what you were thinking? So this has come from a number of areas yet to be confirmed, but, but credible sources are reporting that the, um, head of the head of Russia's armed forces, so General Valery Gerasimov, has been uh, moved to Ukraine to... to, to to either take control of the entire theatre or for the Battle of the Donbass. Donbass, that battle being absolutely pivotal and, and significant. So, I mean, Valery Gerasimov, just to be clear, this is not Vitaly Gerasimov, the Major General Chief of Staff of the 41st Army, who was killed a few weeks ago. So Valery Gerasimov, the, the overall, the head of the entire Russian armed forces, if this is, if this is correct, if he's been moved down there, then that is, that is absolutely staggering. It's fir- firstly to take someone of that position... Um, from effectively what's a, you know, a policy position, put him into an operational appointment um, is is interesting. Um, and secondly, what does it say of General Dvornikov, who apparently uh, after the after Russia withdrew from the north of the country and reconstituted in, in Belarus and Russia, uh, ready for this fight in Donbass, Russia said that General Dvornikov was going to be the overall theatre commander and bring a bring a sense of coherence and uh, coordination and unity to the to the effort. So if that's now not the case, um, what has gone wrong? Is is this a suggestion that that Putin wanted a result in the last couple of weeks, which no, I don't think any sensible military observer would would say was was ever likely to happen. Um, or is he is Dvornikov now in charge of the Donbass and Gerasimov is in charge of the of the of the overall theater uh, and what does it say of home i mean if there's nobody there in moscow acting as putin's principal military advisor that's that's quite staggering as well so i mean very very odd and it speaks a completely sort of topsy turvy way that that many other countries would have done it so many other countries particularly in the west go for a, a sort of uh, we try and push initiative or, or push decision making down to the lowest possible level to encourage initiative and let the person on the ground, the low level military commander at whatever rank that is, in whatever position, who, who has a better understanding of the of the, the problem set in front of them uh, and pro- probably a better idea of how to solve it. Let them get on with it rather than impose these uh, these ideas from above. So so this this very top down, literally top down from the top of the military into into theatre. If this is correct, it speaks of all sorts of command and control um, problems, which which it might solve. I'm not 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 denying. I mean, they're not going. If they've done it, they're not going to do it just for fun. They're going to hope hope to resolve this. But I mean, it it would need a pretty 
spectacular plan from General Gerasimov that is then put in place by what has so far been a fairly suboptimal, um, pretty average performance by the military on the ground to have made this a, a good decision. So, like I say, treat, treat it with a note of caution because we've yet to have it properly confirmed yet. Um, and it does seem quite quite staggering. But, uh, yeah, very interesting that, that General Gerasimov, the architect, you may remember, of the Gerasimov Doctrine, uh, which is supposed to be how to do warfare in the 21st century, this blend of military and economic and sort of information and, and a bit of espionage and economics and so on and so forth, um, how to wield all the levers of power. Um, we'll, we'll see what he's like as an operational commander. There's a difference between being, a, being an operational commander, sort of blood and guts, General MacArthur type figure, and being um, and being a, a military intellectual, if you like. Sort of Clausewitz did not have a fantastic record as a as an operational field commander, but he you know he knew his onions and he could write a write a fairly thick book that's propping up in the fire door. Um, so you know Gerasimov might be out of that mould. He might be he might be able to articulate it on paper, but whether or not he can put it into practice uh, is interesting, and 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 he may he may not be able to. So. We shall see if the, firstly we need to confirm that this is this has happened. Secondly, we need to get a get a take a view on well, what does that mean for the theatre and for Dvornikov and any any increased um, resources that might go that way. Um, and yes, and it's all running up to the May the ninth date, as we've discussed many many times, that is likely to uh, or no longer likely to be be used to announce any kind of victory. Um, but could be used as a as a, an opportunity to call for wider mobilisation and seek greater international support. Maybe even Putin using uh, you know referring to it as a war, declaring declaring war. So very interesting moves at the very the highest echelons of Russian command and control to watch out for. Thanks, Dom. Um, can we look back towards at the beginning of the war? So new details have come out about the first few days and President Zelensky's uh, compound in Kyiv. Um, Casey O'Neill, can you tell us what, what we've discovered about those first few hours? Yeah, this was a really interesting profile that the Time uh, magazine has done on Zelensky. As much as he's been such a prominent figure, and rightly so, uh, since the invasion began, detail on his movements and how he has fared personally since the invasion began have been quite scant but uh, this profile shed some light on that um, it's interesting that he bunkered down um, for a time in his compound um, but it really was very according to this profile very poorly reinforced his uh, security team were handed uh, automatic weapons according to, to this piece of writing but many of them apparently didn't know how to use them the back gate to the uh, to the compound was very poorly secured um, with uh, with plywood. Um, when you imagine, you know, the, he's enemy number one for Putin, and he's in this very uh, poorly guarded uh, compound. It's it's difficult to conceive of. Uh, also, in that report um, is the suggestion that both the US and the UK were encouraging Zelensky to leave Ukraine and not just not just Kiev, but to leave Ukraine and to set up a government in exile exile somewhere else, uh, presumably somewhere like uh, Poland, but he didn't entertain that um, idea for a minute. Um, he gave a quote to Time magazine that featured in this article in which he acknowledged that he's a symbol um, and that, you know, uh, beyond being a politician and a leader, he's also uh, a symbol for people and, and you know, his show of resilience is important to them there. So it, it's just an interesting insight 
into, you know, his movements. He pops up, you know, very, very frequently giving addresses to parliaments um, by video link um, most days and, and doing interviews. But this sort of personal insight into uh, to where he's been and, and his uh, strategy is quite interesting and, and illuminating to to uh, to read. You know, he is an enigmatic character, as we all know. He started as a soap star. He was on the equivalent of uh, Strictly Come Dancing in in Ukraine, and he's really just shown. I I I don't uh, think many commentators have uh, analysts have um, you know a lot uh, to say that that's negative about Zelensky. So interesting that that uh, we have this profile showing how he spent the the beginning stages of the invasion. Absolutely. Uh, Mutaz Ahmed, I'm sure you have some thoughts about, about what we've learned about Zelensky's, I think, I think you can, we can call it heroism in the early hours of the war. Yeah, heroism. Um, it, it's interesting, you know, we, we talk a lot about sort of modern weapon systems, you know, stealth drones, and uh, as if war is, is sort of automatic, um, when actually fundamentally in this war, like every other war, traditional aspects of, you know, just leadership matter, you know. It still matters to have a leader who is brave and honourable and 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 you know uh, you know uh, a, a leader who sort of represents valour. Um, it's it, 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 those are the kinds of traits we saw in war leaders here in Britain too. And you know, it, 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 we we've known for some time that Zelensky is an incredibly impressive man. But I think when the, the history books are written, so when we look back on this, we, we, we may even find that we we underestimated the impact he had. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just hope it continues. Um, but it's, it's also a reminder of how wrong we got the war at the start. You know, our assumptions about Ukraine's survival were completely off. We were right about, you know, we were right to warn that Russia was about to invade. Our intelligence was correct. Uh, but we thought Ukraine would collapse within days. Um, and that's that was the root of those um, efforts to get Zelensky out. Well, you know, we're, we're three, four months in and, and Ukraine's still surviving. So so we got that completely, completely wrong. And, and Zelensky was right. Thanks, Mijas. Is there anything else you think we need to, to discuss before we go on to potentially either a reader question or I know Dom Nichols has been doing more research about the dolphins that the Russian military are uh, apparently employing in the Black Sea. I think we should probably discuss the uh, the Britons who have, uh, or, or should I say, the Britain who has lost their life in Ukraine. It's the first British national uh, to die uh, during the war in Ukraine. His name was Scott Sibley. He was a 36-year-old who served uh, in the Royal Marines previously, and he's part of the International Legion. He was uh, he was in Mykolaiv where he uh, died during Russian sh- Russian shelling. Um, we think maybe yesterday, the day before, starting to get a profile of, of him coming through. He had a daughter, a rare form of cancer, who he did a lot of, uh, uh, you know, fundraising for, and, and he's survived by her. There's also another British man who has yet to be publicly identified who is missing, uh, we think, in Mikolav as well, um, and also reports this morning that two British men who were working in humanitarian aid have been captured by the Russians in uh, Zaporizhia. 
Uh, so these men, we do have uh, identities for. They were working for a, uh, a not-for-profit British charity called Presidium uh, Network. And they were stopped at a Russian checkpoint last night when we believe that they were captured. The people that they were checking in with noted that the text messages that they were receiving from these two men became increasingly different to how they would usually engage um, and their families and, and their next of kin are saying that they are, were captured by the Russians because they have been accused of um, being British spies. So uh, a lot of movement in, in the past day or two in terms of how British lives are being uh, wrapped up into the conflict. Thanks, Casey. If Mutas or Dom um, have anything to add, uh, do, do say now. Otherwise, I think we should turn to uh, Dom's, uh, Dom, what you've discovered about these, these military dolphins. Can, can, I, can I just say very quickly that... Please, please. There's a very important distinction between um, those who tragically die um, after joining the, the International Legion. Um, so so I, I think that, 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 that one death yesterday was someone who was fighting as part of the International Legion. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Katie. Um, when, when, when you join something like that, you, 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 you take on responsibility and you take on, uh, not resp- you take on an element of risk. Um, there's a difference between that and what we're seeing now with what what looks like humanitarian workers captured. That could become very very political, um, uh, and 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 we could see a, a lot of tension arising from that because you know those people I think are, or all the evidence suggests they're not they're not fighters. Um, uh, so that that could lead to some some form of escalation. That's one to watch out for. Yeah, that is a, an important uh, distinction uh, to make, and I thank you for making it. And yes, you are correct. Uh, Scott Sibley has uh, he was working with the uh, International Legion in Mikolaev. Well, thank you both, um, Dominic Nichols. You've been speaking to uh, sources uh, about about these dolphins. Will you tell us what you found? So after yesterday's uh, chat, when we, we were talking about the, the dolphin pens that have been identified from satellite imagery around the Sevastopol port, the Russian Russian port on Crimea, in Crimea. Um, we, yeah, I was asking around why why dolphins. As, as we said yesterday, animals have been used across history for for military effect, and they, they still are. And there's been a lot of research for decades into dolphins and their amazing capacity, capability for sonar, and how how that could better human uh, human warfare. Um, and so we we were just trying to work out what what was happening here. Um, so I was asking a few. A few naval sources, a few, few people who know much more about these things than, than I do. Uh, and yeah, it, it is, uh, unsurprisingly, it's all down to, down to the sonar. These uh, dolphins are amazingly capable of, of finding things under the water. Um, and it was suggested to me that this was not, this was not that they would necessarily go and, I don't know, go and attack a diver, if you like, or do something like that, or, or, or mark, mark the position. And, and suggestions, I think there have been trials to try and get dolphins to, to drop things, either, either, either markers that could then signal or um, paint dye in the water when they, when they see things under the water. Um, I don't think they've come to, come to fruition or, or not been, um, it's not, they're not that sophisticated. But um, a, bit of a bit of a grim ending to the story, I'm, I'm afraid. But I was told that actually what... What they can do is they can they can spot things underwater mines, underwater autonomous vehicles, so drones, submarines, um, and uh, and if you strap strap explosives to a dolphin and they go and then find something, you, you'd be able to you'd be able to attack it by by setting off the charge, killing the dolphin and and killing whatever else is there. So uh, it's yeah not not particularly edifying, 
um, the source I spoke to, who, who who I do trust, he said that this capability, that capability of of, of strapping strapping um, devices to to dolphins and then letting them free or in a certain area you want to you want to cover. Um, so a submarine pen would be a good a good example. If you if all your boats are out uh, or or in, you're not you're not going in and out. You you can then sort of have this area relatively free um, to allow these allow the mammals to go and go and uh, and 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 do what they want to do. And 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 if they see something, then uh, you can have an effect. But yeah, ultimately it involves um, killing the dolphin and and potentially knocking out whatever whatever was coming uh, coming towards it. But uh, yeah, the, the the source said to me this capability does exist if you have a heart of stone and i think that's what it would take so uh, yeah fairly fairly a grim to end the weekend i'm sorry about that but uh, did promise you uh, promise you an answer so so there we go dolphins and bombs thanks tom just because it's the end of the week and we've seen fighting ramp up in the donbass and with, with no end of the conflict it feels like in in sight at the moment um can I get your thoughts of what what are the sort of what what do we think might happen in the next few weeks? What are the worst case scenarios, um, and also what are the best? I think we know that the forces in um, Mariupol, uh, the Ukrainian resistance there, is is really hanging on by a thread. Um, that steelworks plant where both. Uh, Ukrainian soldiers and civilians are sheltering. Uh, today, Ukraine said that they're going to try and evacuate the civilians that are still in that steel plant. Uh, Russia said in theory during uh, the Guterres visit uh, earlier in the week that in theory that they would comply with calls from the Red Cross and the UN to facilitate some sort of humanitarian corridor there. So, I mean, they've they've said this kind of thing in terms of uh, humanitarian corridors previously where they have said that they've agreed to them and then uh, shelled those those routes and attacked those routes. But uh, hopefully, uh, as the Ukrainians hope to do today, they can uh, get some of the people still trapped uh, in that steelworks uh, plant out because we know that they are without uh, a lot of uh, food stock and there are a lot of injured soldiers in uh, that uh, steelworks that require medicine and care. Um, but yes, important to say that the the uh, evacuation is going to be focused on civilians and not on the uh, soldiers that are also there. Mutaz Adam, I'm, I'm 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 the, the next big thing I'm I'm watching out for is uh, May 9th. I, I Dom mentioned this earlier. You know, we we should get a strong indication of where Putin wants this war to go. You know, uh, you know, we should we should we should. Uh, listen to whether he he formally declares war um, and, and therefore full mobilization. Uh, we should listen carefully to what he says his objectives are, what his officials say their objectives are, and 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 we should watch how they celebrate. You know, it, 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 there have been suggestions that there might be some marches, perhaps in Ukraine. Um, that there might be something, some sort of activity in, in Mariupol. You know, these will give us indications too of, you know, uh, Putin's war objectives. Whether they're happy with just holding on to what they have currently, or or whether they're, they're they want to move forward and 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 start capturing uh, areas where which they perhaps have withdrawn from since the first stage of the war. Um, so that that's an important date. Um, it's not quite a victory day for Russia, but it's it's it it it, it you know it will give us some some strong strong indications. I, I think you've got to look at the 
Donbass. I mean, the, the Russian, the Rus- Russia's war has not gone not gone well so far. And if you want a visual metaphor for that, have a look online. You'll see images from foreign aid in, in Russia where there's a, a Russian counter battery radar on the on the low loader on a truck being driven through the city, and uh, went under a bridge that, and it was. The, the bridge wasn't wasn't big enough, so the the, the counter battery radar, hugely sophisticated piece of equipment, has just spanked straight into a bridge. I mean, there's the metaphor for Russia's war so far. But in the in the Donbass, if Russia can get its combined arms manoeuvre together, then there could be problems, big problems for Ukraine. The heavy artillery that's been promised and and that is flowing in uh, is not there yet in all the numbers it it, it needs uh, to be and ukraine needs this heavy artillery to to hold the russian artillery back because the the ground elements tanks and infantry basically have now are now inching forward underneath this sort of rolling barrage and this this umbrella from the artillery um, as they should have been doing all along and so Ukraine need to push that umbrella back, push that heavy artillery back so that it either exposes the Russian ground forces or they still go forward and they can be, they can be um, nibbled off by the anti-tank um, teams as, we, as we've seen before. So there's not enough heavy weaponry yet, heavy artillery yet in the Donbass on the Ukrainian side. And there's the risk that, that Russia, uh, just these incremental advances, they're, they're, going, to, they're going to make a breakthrough. Uh, if the Donbass... Uh, falls, then that then that is very a very very significant um, act in in this war, and we will see whether or not it was the main objective all along, as they as they suggest. Um, and I remember the quote that I mangled at the start of this of this chat, for which I apologise. Um, and we will see whether or not the, uh, the the attack in the north was just a diversion, because of course the quote is the diversion you've been ignoring will turn out to be the enemy's main attack. And we'll finally see whether the Donbass was Russia's main objective all along. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Today, Ukraine The Latest was produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Alice Hearing.